So parents can be proactive in initiating that if the student is struggling. So I always say it's better to start when there's the first sign rather than wait for things to get really bad. Thank you for joining us today on the Family Care Learning Podcast. My name is Shelly Yutsky and I'm the Foster Care Program Manager here at Christian Family Care. And today we will be talking about the importance of getting educational services for foster care children. Um, we have the privilege of having Jenny Mullins here with us and she's one of the founders of Advocacy 39, 31.9. Yep, there we go, got I got it. Yep. Um, Jenny, before you start talking about Advocacy, Advocacy 31.9, can you please tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure, yeah, my name is Jenny and I was a teacher for about 10 years um, and then had a daughter who we found out has autism. So I stayed home with her um, and just kind of advocated for what she needed in school. That led to um, kind of a career in special education advocacy, which long and short of it is I started a nonprofit to support the needs of children in foster care. Okay, so yeah. you can go ahead and tell us a little bit about Advocacy 319, yeah. and I'm interested in the 319. I have yes. an inkling I know yes. what that is, <laughs> but go ahead and share that with us. Yeah, so our name comes from Proverbs 319, and that says, stand up, speak rightly, defend the rights of the poor and vulnerable. So that kind of um, captures our mission and what we wanna do. And so our organization uh, provides educational support for students in foster care or impacted by foster care. Um, so we provide one-on-one, -on -one, uh, we have a team of volunteer advocates that are matched with families as they have students struggling in school and they help them navigate the um, kind of complicated special education process because it's a lot of jargon and acronyms and words. And so we have um, volunteers that um, walk with them through that process. And then we provide training for foster care support groups on educational um, supports, as well as uh, training for schools and understanding how trauma affects learning. I did see that trauma teaching and training for basically the teachers. Mm -hmm. yeah. So what kind of, how did that get started? I mean, cause we know our yeah. kids will come into care and they've had all this trauma and now we put them in school. I mean, right. and I wish them luck. Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> yeah. so tell us how that training kind of helps alleviate some of that yeah. for those teachers too, because it's, right. they don't have that resource. Right, yeah, actually in Arizona, there's a huge movement of trauma-informed education, oh. which we're excited about, but a lot of schools really struggle to understand the trauma piece and how that affects students educationally. Um, I shared in the presentation that students, there was a Stanford study that found that students who have um, experienced trauma are 32 times more likely to have uh, learning or behavioral challenges. So we know that it's directly tied. So our um, our training that we do for teachers and school staff is really kind of giving them a high level view of trauma and how that impacts students and then really practical tips on how to implement things like sensory breaks and calming techniques that help all students, but especially our trauma kiddos. And sure. a lot of that has come from our own experience. Um, we have a volunteer team, mostly of educators um, or foster parents, um, and then my own experience in the classroom. And so, um, that's been really well received from schools because I think they're struggling and knowing how to meet those needs. Right, and yeah. then you add COVID, a pandemic right. with that. And right. so now you're trying to do it virtually and right. having kids sit and all of yes. those other things. So it's great yeah. that you guys are a resource for those teachers yeah. to be able to kind of go that way. Yeah. From the foster parent standpoint, like yeah. we have a child and we take them to school and a lot of times we don't know where they are. Like mm, they may say yes. their age and we put them in that grade, but what mm -hmm. happens 
like when you realize as like this isn't working, we have mm. to figure something else out. What would you say to that foster family at that point? Yeah, unfortunately in special education, there's a lot of jargon. <laughs> and so one of the key magic words that we were just talking about previously in the training is um, to request a comprehensive psychoeducational evaluation. So that's not just looking at academics, but looking at all areas of education. So that might be, do they struggle um, with sense, like do they, are they have sensory processing difficulties? Do they struggle with making friends or taking turns? So that evaluation is kind of the first step. And that's something that foster parents can advocate and ask for. Okay, so how do they ask for that? Yes, so the first <laughs> thing is, always ask for it in writing. And if you go to our website, advocacy319.org, we have a template that families can use to request that evaluation. Um, if they get stuck or if they hit barriers, they can always reach out to us. On our website, there's a referral form and just a short intake form, and we can kind of help them navigate that. But the first step is just putting that request in writing. Okay. Once that request is in writing, then how long does the school have to actually perform that screening? test. So there's a lot of timelines. So the school has to meet with the family within 15 days. Okay. And from that meeting, they decide what they want to evaluate. From the date that they get that signature permission to evaluate, they have 60 days to complete the evaluation and discuss the results. Okay. Yeah. And I think that's a lot where we don't know, like how much does a foster parent have as far as the power to be able to request those things? Yeah. Because a lot of times we're saying, well, we want DCS to do it, or we need to have the birth family's permission mm, to do mm -hmm. it, things along that line. Is that the case or is it? It's yeah, it's very complicated. <laughs> so DCS, the first kind of misnomer is that DCS has any involvement in that process. And actually they don't, they have no uh, legal authority in that regard. Um, if parents, bio parents rights have not been severed, the birth parent is actually the one that signs the consent for the evaluation. The foster parent can definitely um, ask for that evaluation, get the school to meet together, but in order for them to proceed, they need the birth parent's signature. Um, if rights have been severed, Unfortunately, the foster parents still can't sign consent. It actually, the Department of Ed has to assign a surrogate parent to sign that consent, um, which is very complicated and most districts even don't know that that's supposed to be the case. Um, so please reach out to us if you need help. Say, yeah, That sounds like one of those, like, well, I yes. think I need to reach out to Jenny yes. now. <laughs> yes. So if you get to that point and you're not sure who can sign, just reach out to us. Yeah. Perfect, perfect. Yeah, because it is, it, it is, uh, like navigating almost like the, the judicial system right. for dependencies and mm -hmm. all that kind of stuff. There's just all of these hoops that yeah. have to apparently and go timelines and, and, timelines yeah. and things along that line. Yeah. So I know a lot of times when we have kids going back to that trauma is mm -hmm. we have kids that will have behaviors at school. Mm -hmm. And so you don't know whether it's because of the behaviors they're not learning right? right. or is it because they're not learning and that's why they have the mm -hmm. behaviors mm -hmm. and all of those types of things. Is there with this screening that you were mm. talking about, is that kind of the areas that they're looking at to try to figure out like, what is it that we need to address, whether it's the trauma from, and that's why the behaviors or right. it's the education piece and we have to, mm -hmm. they go hand in hand. Right, but they do, yeah. But, yeah. And I would say most of the referrals we get are for behavior. It's not really academic reasons. Okay. And so behavior is a, a component that the school team um, can evaluate to see why are those behaviors occurring? Is it because they're dysregulated mm -hmm. or is it because they might be hungry and so they're hoarding food or um, different 
different things that maybe present. Um, but like you said, they're linked, they, um, go together. And so requesting that evaluation, a piece of that could be to look at the behaviors. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah, there's, there's so many variables I know. because we have some children that definitely have some cognitive delays mm-hmm. and that may be due to substance exposure, right. um, some type of abuse or neglect that they had, things mm-hmm. along that line. So I, when this screening happens and they end up finding out like, yes, there's some special services that we need mm-hmm. to have in place and those type of things is that at that point, because now the foster parent has asked for that and, you know, to be happening, mm-hmm. we've had the sign off and everything. Now, the, is it more of an IEP that gets put in place at that time? Yeah. And then can you kind of explain sure. those yeah. two different, right. you know, there's two different yes. things going on there at 503. A lot of times parents will say, will ask the school, I'd like my student, my child to have an IEP, but what, in order to get that, the school has to evaluate first and see if they're eligible for special education. So there's 13 categories a student can qualify under. So they have to qualify under one. And then from there, they have 30 days to write an IEP. And the IEP is based completely on the needs of this child. So not necessarily even what qualified them, but it could be any area that they're struggling in school. Um, An IEP is for specially designed instruction. Um, So students, if they, let's say they have dyslexia and they struggle to read, they need a specially designed instruction for students with dyslexia versus just the regular reading curriculum. Um, There is something that you mentioned, the 504 plan, and that would be more just accommodations. So maybe a student just needs um, a movement break or they need, um, some kids need like a wiggle seat. seat. (laughs) Yeah. Um, or they need to be able to stand in the back of the classroom. Those are all modifications or um, accommodations. And so that is part of a 504 plan. So like that would include if things are getting too loud. Right. Or uh-huh. taking, like you said, those little breaks or not right. having having a certain boundary around uh-huh. them so yeah. that, that, yeah. that they feel comfortable and safe and secure right. to be able to sit and learn. Right. So cool. Yeah. Great. Is there anything else? I know people can visit their website, Yeah. Um, your website, and kind of look over the educational pieces in, in, in that. But is there anything yeah. specifically that we didn't kind of like cover with some of the services that you provide? Yeah. So I think um, one thing for families to know is whenever they feel like there's a problem, that's when they should initiate with a school. Yeah. Sometimes schools will say, well, we need to kind of wait 45 days or do this 45 day screener. And that is true on the school's end that they can, they do a screening every 45 days, but they don't need to wait for that. So parents can be proactive in initiating that if the student is struggling. So I would say it's better to start when there's the first sign rather than wait for things to get really bad and then start the process because it is a complicated process. It takes 60 days for the evaluation and then another 30 days for an IEP. So that's 60, that's three months. That's a whole quarter. So to not wait, if you have concerns, reach out to um, the school psychologist and the school principal and ask for that meeting to talk about your concerns. So it really sounds like like you're saying, you need to start it because you already have these other time frames that are going to hit. Right. So you're better off just knowing. Do you do you feel that maybe there's some pushback from some schools that you know, like, well, we're going to wait because yes. we can do this mm-hmm. or whatever. But it's just at that point, as a parent, you need to be more yes, yeah, upfront and say, no, we really need to do this now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. A lot of schools will take a wait and see approach, and that's a lot of what I hear when I talk to families. As the schools told them, well, just let's just wait and see, and while that 
might be appropriate sometimes for our kids if they don't have time to wait and see. Um, we need to get them support as soon as possible, um, like yesterday, usually in most cases. Um, another barrier that I hear is schools will say, well, we have our tiered intervention. We have our reading intervention program, or our math intervention program. So we're going to do these interventions and see if they work first before we evaluate. And actually, the um, Department of Ed has made it clear that that can't be used as a reason to delay or deny an evaluation. Yeah. So if you hear that, while that's great that they want to do some interventions, that doesn't mean that the school shouldn't evaluate to see if there's more underlying things going on. Um, so those are some of the pushback that we hear from schools is let's wait and see or let's try these interventions first and then we'll talk about evaluating. Or another kind of barrier we see is uh, students moving around from school to school. And so by the time they get stable in one place, they've missed lots of opportunity. So um, I was going to say placement in a home may not be when you're talking about that much time, three months right. or whatever, if you're waiting and then now, yeah. yes, they, they may already be gone, which kind of leads to the next question. Mm. Once once a plan has been put in place for mm -hmm. that child, that child basically takes that no matter where they right. go. So that's the other right. thing benefit, kind of benefit yeah. of like, don't wait mm -hmm. as a foster parent, don't wait, like get it going because mm -hmm. once they leave, whether it's reunification or finding right. permanency everywhere, anywhere else, if they're not in the same school, right. That goes with them. Right. Yeah. That, by law, that follows the child wherever they go, like you said. And so that it's a legal document that gives a lot of the, maybe they have a great teacher that's doing a lot of great strategies. We want all of that included right. so that whoever is the next teacher mm -hmm. gets that information. What we're hearing too is a lot of foster families don't even know if a child has an IEP because that information is not provided by DCS. So every district has a district liaison that can pull those records. Um, so if you are not sure or you maybe your child said oh I had an IEP but you have never seen it if you reach out to your um, school district's liaison they can yeah. pull that information okay. can you tell us um, like what is there any cost involved in using your services at advocacy 319 yeah that's actually partly why I started a nonprofit is I wanted this to be accessible for foster families so we don't charge for any of our services all of our funding comes from private um, foundation grants or tax credit donations. Okay. So yep, no Very charge. Nice. So just reach out just, to us. All right. You want to share your website and any phone sure. number to get a hold of you? And Yeah. So our website is www.advocacy31nine, just to make it complicated, dot .org. <laughs> <laughs> um, Advocacy319.org. And on there, um, there's several different boxes. If you click on the box for services, there's an intake form. And if you fill that out, we'll get an advocate in touch with you if you need support. There's also another box if you want a training, if you want to request a training. If you're in a foster care support group, if you want one of us to come and talk to your group, we're happy to do that too. Okay. Yeah. Very good. Well, I want to thank you so much for joining us today, Jenny, and um, sharing all of those ins and outs and the timeframes and all of that does yeah. get complicated, but yeah. I'm glad that we have agencies, you know, that you've created and be able to have yeah. that as a resource for a lot of for our sure. families and specifically to help our children that yeah. find themselves in the system and having had that trauma and all yeah. of those things and to be able to have school be that safe and secure mm. place for them mm -hmm. is just really so important. Yeah, so I just definitely. thank you for your time with yeah, us today. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. 
Well, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Family Care Learning Podcast. If you found this content helpful or encouraging, please click that subscribe button and give us a review or share this with other families that might enjoy this type of content. Just a reminder, we have the full video of this podcast on our YouTube channel. And if you're a foster parent that needs continuing education credits, you can check us out at familycarelearning.org, where we have an entire catalog of foster care training courses. Family Care Learning is made possible by the donations from listeners like you. If you wish to support the work we do in strengthening families, feel free to make a tax-deductible donation at familycarelearning.org. Thank you.